Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's start. Let's start. The um, first, first thing is balloons. Balloons. We don't, we don't think balloons have too much to do with investment prospects. Second thing is State of the Union. Um, I think from an investment point of view, we have to assume that we will have a different president in 24. We don't know whether it will be Nikki Haley or some other Republican or whether it will be some Democrat other than Joe Biden. But I think from an investment point of view, I think there will be a change, which I think is positive. On the price of oil, I think it's at this point completely a matter of how long Ukraine goes on for, whether there's just kind of a long-term stalemate, which is positive for the price of oil. And the other positive for the price of oil is, will China be more or less back to normal by, you know, June or July or something? And the early reports there, not just from news from Western sources, but also news from the Chinese news sources is pretty positive. Here's the problem, though. The sanctions on Russia don't seem to make any difference. They came up with this TAP program for crude uh, and, and now for products. Sanctions on products by the European Union, by everyone, well, by the European Union started February 5th, just a few days ago. It doesn't seem to make any difference. I think the conclusion to come to is that the oil industry, as always, is hugely resilient. So the oil goes to India. But we don't, some of the people who predicted $120 oil because of sanctions on Russia were just off. And you don't hear people making that prediction anymore. Surplus capacity in the world, the three largest producers are Russia, Saudi Arabia, and the United States. The United States is kind of steady maybe increasing somewhat. Uh, Russia's probably off maybe three quarters of a million barrels, off 10 and a half or something. And Saudi Arabia and the Emirates who have extra production capacity are probably off by, you know, a million barrels a day. So the problem is on the supply side in the near term, these Projections of very high oil prices just haven't happened and are not likely to happen. The problem with Ukraine, if they somehow came up with a peace plan, oil will go down. 
because it, it'll, uh, you know, people are, are not assuming that anything will happen in Ukraine other than kind of a long-term stalemate. Remember, after Russia seized it, Crimea, there was fighting in eastern Ukraine uh, between Ukrainians and special forces, you know, who are, you know, Russian military soldiers who dressed in something other than their uniforms. So that may be what we wind up. So oil's somewhere in the 70s, backwardated about eight or nine dollars a barrel out three years. I think a reasonable expectation is that will just that's just the state of affairs. And to the extent that you own Exxon or Chevron or EOG or I know you're any other oil producer, you're fine. You know, it, it, it's, I wouldn't necessarily add to a position, but I wouldn't be chased out of position. A more tricky situation is natural gas. Um, the Marcellus, which is our largest gas producer, about 35 Bs a day out of total US production of 95 or 96 is flat as a pancake. And the companies on page 11, excuse me, page 12, Antero, EQT, and Chesapeake, uh, EQT and Antero are entirely Marcellus. Chesapeake is about two thirds Marcellus and one third Haynesville. Those companies have held, those stocks have held up pretty well given what's happened in natural gas. They all have sworn off, or they were in the process of swearing off hedging, but increasingly they'll be take whatever price is out there in the market. The near month was as high as six or seven dollars, just you know at the beginning of the winter, and the near month is now two fifty. Degree days in Central Park, it's around four thousand heating degree days in a season. You know. July 1 to June 30, we're 400 behind. Given the forecast, I'm looking out the window here, it's absolutely blue sky, and I think it's about 45 or 50 degrees out. We'll be down in degree days after this weekend and into next week, we'll be down another 150. The way we, the way I like to think about it, because we're, you know, this certainly affects the heating all business. Star Group will you know, they will have less cash flow, but but they'll they'll adapt. It's easier to go through this kind of warm winter in 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 Star Group than it is to go through a gas producer, because the price of gas, when there's an extra two or three Bs a day of extra, of supply over demand, there's no telling what the price will go to, because there's no way to kill off supply other than people dropping rates. And the Marcellus is flat anyway, because there isn't pipeline access out of the out of the basin. So the producers there spend just enough money to maintain flat production. The extra gas is coming from the Haynesville, which is a shale deeper in, in, in Louisiana, in kind of Western Louisiana and East Texas, uh, East and South Texas. And it's deeper, it's expensive to drill, it will, rigs will be dropped 
at these gas prices. But it'll take some number of months to see reduced production. The more troublesome one is the Permian, the two big basins out there, Midland Basin and the Delaware Basin. Uh, the primary producing formation is the Wolf Camp. Turns out the Wolf Camp has got more gas than anyone expected. And you see that in the Waha price. Waha is the gas hub in West Texas, has been trading at a dollar, a dollar fifty. There was even a day where if you had gas at Waha, you had to pay someone to take the gas. It was, you know, minus one fifty or something. That Waha price is a result of too much production in the Permian. Now you can say the takeaway pipelines, you know, there was a compressor down or this or that, but that that type of thinking has been going on and the Waha price hasn't gotten any better. So just we've got a serious overcapacity problem now. Rigs are not necessarily going to be dropped because if the price of oil is still in the 70s, Exxon, Chevron, EOG, Oxy, Devon, they, they're going to keep producing. A pioneer in the middle of basin, pioneer, Diamondback, they're going to keep producing. So I don't know how to fix that. Now, the gas demand away from LNG is flat as a pancake. Industrial use is flat, steady, but not growing. Use of gas to make power is kind of flat. The thing that goes up and down is residential. And when you have, what I fear now is a winter that's 15% warmer than normal. You have to look at national degree days, but in terms of degree days in Central Park, which you can see in, in the New York Times weather map every morning, it's now 10%. And by the time we get through this warm weather, it's going to be 12%. By the time we get through this warm weather, it's going to be the third or fourth week in February. Uh, maybe we get some later cold weather in March and April, but the later cold weather doesn't count as much as cold weather in December, January, and February, because uh, if the sun's out, you know, your house stays warmer. The degree days in the three winter months are much more important than the degree days in the spring. So I'm hoping for the best. But if on a national basis or where the population is, you know, Chicago, the southeast and whatnot, it was 15% warmer than normal, price of gas will go to a buck and a half. I mean, there's no, it's currently, current month is 260. Now you can say, that you're now in contango, the 25 price and the 24 price, 25 price, 26 price holding in there at $4, and they are. But it's just a matter of trading strategies or trading conditions. They will come down. They may not, they may still be $3 plus. But now, how will Antero and Chesapeake and EQT trade? trade? Well, they're trading much better than the underlying commodity. I mean, they're down, but not as much as price of gas is down. If you want to own more of these companies, then those three companies are pretty good companies. And when LNG demand ticks up, they will benefit from it. But you got to get the LNG plants open. It takes two, three years to build a, an LNG, a new LNG train, especially if it's in a, you know, in a, in a new area rather than an add-on. And there's two Bs of LNG demand at Freeport, which went down because of some kind of event, fire event or something middle of last year, they're still having trouble bringing Freeport up. And so that's, that's very worrisome. So 
you know, don't, don't, don't get chased out of your gas stock position. But if you're going to add to them, do it, do it later. I'm pretty sure. In terms of overall macro impact, this is fantastic for Europe because Europe has always also been warmer. So this idea that they're going to run out of gas and have to use a lot of two oil to replace the gas and it just hasn't happened. So Europe is going to come through this reasonably well and they have the problem of how to, you know, how to how to build up stockpiles of natural gas, storage of natural gas for next winter. But they have put in a fair amount of LNG capacity, both floating and receiving terminals expedited through the permitting and whatnot. So they can run that LNG all summer, fill up their storage, and I think maybe okay next winter. On balance for the economy, world economy, that's a positive thing. LNG prices, which got as high as fifty or sixty dollars, are currently like fourteen or fifteen dollars. So that that's all that's all very positive. With that, I'm just gonna because we talk all the time. Mike and Jason uh, listen to uh, what I say about energy. They do their own work on energy. So I'm just gonna pause and see if Mike or Jason have have anything to add to that assessment of the oil and gas business. No, I don't think so. I, I I think that was a good summary, and and I think that degree day thing is something that took me longer to understand in the early days of back in 2012, going to your seminars in person. So I think it was good to explain that because it, it is kind of key to understanding all this. What I'd like to do now, going back to the in person seminars that we used to do at Four South Street, I'd like to start with page 20. We oftentimes would do it the the the, the sheets we worked off then, I think, got out to about 30 pages. I think these are better sheets, and we're at 20. I'm not going to say there isn't going to be a 21 or 22, but we're going to pause on 20. What we would often do during those meetings is start with the last page. And the last page, for those of you who don't have the 20 pages in front of you, are Uber, Dash, and Airbnb. And I'm going to give you a quick take on what I take away from looking at these three companies and what's laid out on page 20. One is Uber has a fair amount of debt, which I, I'll have to get more familiar with the history of Uber, but I think it's $9 billion of debt. I mean, the equity value, uh, when I did this at, at $30, you know, the equity value times the number of shares outstanding is almost 60 billion. So, but 9 billion is still a lot of debt. And we're going to talk DoorDash and Airbnb. Neither one of them have any debt. So that's a bit of a negative for Uber. On the other hand, Uber has some free cash flow, which surprised me a little. I think that at 30, it was 60 times free cash flow. That's clearly too high. But when I looked at the interim reports, and this was for the nine months through 930, their sales were up by 35%. They went from being negative free cash flow to being a billion dollars positive free cash flow. So those are pretty good interim results. DoorDash is kind of newly public or public more recently. They're in the business of delivering, you know, delivering from food from wherever. They have at best break even cash flow. They have a good balance sheet. Their 
their interim results, their free cash flow did not improve. Their, their sales were up 20% for the nine month interims. Airbnb, which I knew nothing about. I really didn't know Uber or DoorDash either. That's one of the advantages of these sheets. You, you, you get a better sense for the companies out there that you may just see mentioned in a, you know, in a journal article or anything. Airbnb, I was prepared to not like at all. I certainly wouldn't want to have any place I lived in the city or the country have a lot of Airbnb homes nearby. But Airbnb does have $4 billion of free cash flow. Airbnb has a pretty, pretty clean balance sheet, basically no debt. At around 100, they were trading at 15 times free cash flow and about a 7% free cash yield. And again, the interim results, uh, revenues were up 20%, free cash flow was up 30%. So I, I, I kind of hate the whole concept, but I have to say the financial statements look pretty strong. And with that, I think talk about Uber first. We're, we're going to engage Jason here, who spent a lot more time, you know, it's just much more able as I am, and, 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 and Mike would probably say more able than Mike in terms of assessing what's going on with a network like Uber. But when I first started this, I, I said to Mike, hey, I guess I should have put Lyft in, but I think Uber has kind of become so strong that you just, if you're Lyft or anyone else, you wouldn't want to go into business against them. And Uber, I think, is the, the board and the CEO done a smart thing. They kind of laid off their research on uh, autonomous driving. So that I think they present themselves as if someone's going to have autonomous cars, you're going to have to come and deal with Uber. But over to you, Jason, for your assessment of that position. Yeah, when a, when a company's name becomes a verb, I give them bonus points. So even if you take a lift, you say you're going to Uber somewhere. I was going to touch on their R&D spend as well. I think it was wise for them to drop their program for autonomous, autonomous vehicles. We're seeing how difficult it is for other companies to, to create these, these autonomous cars. And what we are seeing is the first one that reached level three, level three self-driving capability was a Mercedes with NVIDIA's chips in it. So they, they beat Tesla to it. And I, and I think Uber is smart to just let the car manufacturers battle it out and then they'll buy whatever car has that capability. And, and to that effect, the, the CEO of Uber specifically said they're, they're working with EV makers to develop autonomous cars specifically for Uber. And the media kind of assumed they meant passenger compartments that were more comfortable and the, and the seats face each other and everything. But Uber CEO... The only thing he called out specifically was these specs are going to be specific for city driving, autonomous, and electric. So it has me wondering if that aligns with what Tesla's doing and Elon Musk saying they're focusing a lot on this robo-taxi concept, which checks all those boxes specifically. Mike, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I mean, I actually had kind of discounted how their electric vehicle an autonomous strategy until digging deeper on the company. They're very clearly wanting to be the mobility platform. So they, in their view, and 
it's a pretty good perspective that basically they become an expert at running marketplaces in fragmented geographies. So the, the whole reason the taxi market existed the way it was is that you'd have a different taxi company in each city and they would end up having a monopoly in a lot of cases because of various regulatory and or you know other reasons. So what they've become an expert in is regionally operating networks. So their view on the on the self-driving vehicles is that they will have probably lots of providers of self-driving fleets and if they can provide the best solution, meaning the best ability to monetize your vehicle, then they're going to do really well. And I agree with that approach. Yeah. And 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 their R&D spend has gotten under control and if you look at their operating costs as as a percent of revenue, it's it's a big chunk and that and that's paying the drivers. So if they do transition a lot of that over to autonomous vehicles, I think the marketplace model starts to look a little more like Airbnbs. Yeah. I can't get used to having Airbnb homes, but I I do respect the cash flow and I I kind of think that Mike and Jason will probably own this at some point and uh, I'll be a beneficiary as an LP, but I think I'd like to turn the conversation rather than spend more time on page 20. I think I'd like to skip page 19. There we have United Health and CBS, both of which do an enormous amount for the federal government helping run Medicare and Medicaid programs. And, you know, they're kind of like MasterCard and Visa. I mean, they have really good free cash flow. United Health has 23 billion, CBS has 17. The problem I see is that we can't afford all this. Um, uh, on the other hand, I mean, I'm sure that the Medicare, Medicaid programs, you know, run much better because of United Health and CBS and other people providing the service. But it's, it's kind of like the Airbnb. I, maybe Mike and Jason will own it, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not a big fan. I, I, as a lot of you know, from the open seminars, when we did them in person, I had avoided healthcare costs because I just don't see as a country that we can continue to spend just under 20% of our GMP on healthcare. Biden yesterday in his speech said that Republicans wanted to, you know, interfere with the Medicare program. I, I, I believe that without a substantial redo of our healthcare, which would not disadvantage anyone who depends on Medicare for their healthcare, I don't see how this administration or the next administration, which I hope will be led by someone other than Joe Biden and Donald Trump, I, I think sometime in the four years, sometime in the next six years, let's say the remaining two years, which would be difficult, but the next four years, our health system is going to have to be redone. I personally think it'll come to single payer so that anyone who wants can go into Medicare at any age. But if you have an employee plan, employer plan, or any other plan, you can stick with that plan. And if that change is made, I don't, you know, we, we, we've managed 
to run our debt up so that a 1% interest in our 31 trillion of federal debt constitutes one third of spending, discretionary spending, discretionary being not Social Security, not Medicare, not Defense Department. It's put on $900 billion. How can you run a country or a business or whatnot if a 1% change in, in what you pay on the 31 trillion takes a third of the discretionary spending for everything in the government other than Social Security, Medicare, and, and uh, defense. It, it can't work. So I, I, I think that somehow that 20% or 19% of our GNP is spent on healthcare has to come down to 13 or 14%. You can talk wealth taxes on billionaires, and you can talk this and that, but you know, you're, 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 you know, we, it, without that change, I don't see how, how things work. But to turn to page 18 to get on to something more positive, because I view Uber as kind of positive. Actually, I think Airbnb is kind of positive. DoorDash, I think, maybe has some trouble competing with Uber Eats. But on page 18, there's three interesting companies. We only have about three or four minutes left. Just want to quickly cover these. These are worthwhile companies to, to look at, I think. Albemarle is a company that's based in, in North Carolina, and it is, uh, it may be a Chinese company that's bigger, but it is the largest producer of lithium in the world. They produce lithium in this country, but they also produce lithium in Chile, and they produce lithium in Australia. And they not only produce lithium, but they have facilities, including a couple of facilities in China, believe it or not. They spent 400 million in China last year, one to build a upgrade facility and the other to buy, where you take the lithium and take it up to lithium hydroxide, which is what you use to make batteries. Um, they, they do have free cash flow, over a billion dollars of free cash flow. Look at the growth numbers and for the nine months, the revenue was up 40%, the free cash flow was up 50%. Did they have a clean balance sheet, a little bit of debt? You know, really an interesting company. I'm not saying that it ought to be 10% of your portfolio, but to the extent that you're looking for companies, trying to use this period of time to find things that, you know, are not terribly overvalued and, and you know, have a wind at their back, Albemarle is definitely something to look at. Freeport is a copper company. I'm not as positive about copper. I could be wrong, but, you know, I think there are all kinds of issues, macro issues, the copper is generally in difficult spots and whatnot. So CF Industries is ammonia, and uh, it's the largest producer of ammonia in the world. And of course, it's benefited from U.S. gas prices, which is the principal raw material in making ammonia. Ammonia is used primarily for nitrates, and it's used, for example, with corn crops, uh, takes nitrate out of the soil, and you have to use ammonia to put it back in, where soybeans provide the nitrate. So it's very, very dependent on the corn crop. They had they had a fantastic year last year. They have about $3 billion of free cash flow. They're trading at about five times free cash flow. Again, look at the interim results. I mean, the revenue was up 60%, the free cash flow is up 100%. Now, there is a commodity aspect to this, but you know, one of the things we're trying to do by you know, covering 60, 70 companies is to look for places where there's free cash flow and where it's fairly valued. 
we only have uh, like three or four minutes left. We can talk some more about page 18 next week, but I just want to, I, I know both Jason and Mike have, have looked at lithium in the past. I just want to see what kind of view we get from them before we, before we conclude today. Yeah, we, we've done quite a bit of work on looking into lithium and the suppliers of it and, and our views align with that of Albemarle's management that we, we kind of think the supply of lithium will be constrained or, or at least not meet the exponentially growing demand when a lot of analysts predict the, the price is going to kind of normalize to where it had been in the past. Albemarle specifically, they, they signed a bunch of fixed rate contracts a few years ago, the last time the lithium price collapsed. And they've spent this past year unwinding that and transitioning all to variable variable rate contracts that are kind of indexed to the spot price. So even though the, the price of lithium exploded about a year ago to, the, to higher and is held stable, they've been increasing their revenue all year long as the, the contracts transition. And I think they're almost through with that process. Anything to add, Mike? The delta that Jason mentioned between what automakers expect to need to develop the cars, the number of EVs they expect to do in even 2025 is there's not enough lithium. And it, it's just a simple supply and demand equation. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we need more lithium. I mean, I think Elon Musk was very public about saying that more people need to get into this business. Entrepreneurs need to look into going into this business. So you're seeing more of that. And and I guess some of this Inflation Reduction Act stuff is going to require some percentage of the components to be made here in the USA. And, and you know, does that make some of these other lithium producers more viable? Probably. But I think Albemarle is probably the best one to look at from a a company that's been around for a very long time and really understands the market really well. Just, just, I want to take an extra two minutes because we get Mike, Mike and Jason are really good on this stuff. To just talk about batteries, lithium batteries have been around forever. Your cell phone, your laptop, everything runs on lithium batteries. You do have a reputation for burning. In fact, there was a Samsung phone that got banned from airlines. And occasionally you see uh, a Tesla or other car powered by lithium batteries. Uh, somehow something goes wrong and they burn. GM had a problem with their Chevy Volts where LG came on the battery manufacturer, the battery manufacturer in Korea, and they had to have a recall. And I think GM was going back to require LG Chem to put up like a billion dollars to help them pay for the recall of those Chevy Volts. But there is no, in terms of weight and performance and whatnot, there is no substitute for lithium that we see. I shouldn't say we, because that would include Jason and, and Mike, but just a couple minutes before we close on alternatives to lithium, where weight is important with car car performance, just just are not likely to happen. And over, over to you, Mike, you're the car guy more than Jason and me. <laughs> oh, Jason's a car guy too. Uh, <laughs> uh, he, um, yeah, so the battery technology, I mean, if you want to go down a rabbit hole and have a lot of fun learning about chemistry and battery technology, you can, you can do that. There's some actually really good resources out there. 
there's tons of research going into new battery technologies. The problem is the actual transition from a lab to production is ridiculously hard. And the estimate is you can take, to, to actually take something from the lab to production is probably a five plus year project. In the lab, you can develop a battery that has all these great performance characteristics, you know, infinite recharge cycles and all this stuff. But if you can't manufacture it cheaply, then there's no way to bring that to market. So while there have been really cool breakthroughs as far as battery technologies go, I think that we're going to be with lithium ion for at least the next decade. Um, maybe, Jason, I don't know if you have anything else that you really like. but I think we could be doing a lot better with the current technologies that we have. We're, I don't know. It, it seems like there's a horsepower war in the EVs. There's no need. These cars need to go this fast and have this much power. And and I think the best solution we have today is, is really efficient hybrids. So I don't know why we're not pushing that route more than we are. I, Mike, just, just in closer, because I know some of the people on the phone are interested in cars. We think the champion in terms of getting to 60 miles an hour is a uh, Tesla Model S Plaid. When I was talking about this with Mike this morning, he did a couple of checking, and there are a couple of other electric cars or hybrids that, that can get to 60 miles an hour in two seconds. I, I, I mean, I think for most cars, getting there in six seconds is, is good. And Mike, there was one Porsche gas, gas car that, that got by 2.2, but king of the road now in terms of acceleration are the, uh, are the EVs. So. That, that's right. And it, it, what's impressive is that it's a Tesla Model S Plaid that's $115,000, and the one behind it is a hybrid Ferrari, and the one behind that's a hybrid Porsche. So, so yeah, it's, it's impressive that, you know, for, I mean, not that $115,000 is cheap, but relative to those other cars, zero to 60 in 1.9 seconds is pretty incredible. The, uh, please, 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 everyone on the phone, keep investing and trying to cut out the capital. Don't go out and buy a car just because it get the 60 miles an hour in two seconds. I'm sure there's better investments to be made. With that, everyone stay healthy and stay well, and we'll be on next Wednesday. Take care, everyone. The views expressed on this podcast are the host's alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the host nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned. 